Hi everyone, welcome to Policy Punchline. This is a brand new podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Tiger Gao, Princeton sophomore and director of outreach for undergraduate associates at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. Today, we would like to talk about Africa and development finance. Firms and governments in emerging markets, as well as development banks, are increasingly seeking out new private investors. In this context, risk management tools, from balance sheet readjustment to project co-financing, are critical for attracting and retaining investments from private institutional investors. To discuss Africa's current state and some of the issues related to financing economic developments in emerging markets, we have the distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Christopher Marks to our studio today. Dr. Marks is Managing Director and Head of Emerging Markets in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa in Mitsubishi Financial Group. He has worked in the financial markets across the public and private sectors for more than 25 years. Dr. Marks also holds a PhD from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School for Public Policy and International Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Marks, and welcome back to Princeton. Thank you, Tiger. It's a pleasure. Awesome. I've given a quick intro about you, but no intro is as good as one coming from the man himself. Dr. Marks, you've truly had an incredibly diverse range of work experiences as an investment banker, as a public finance specialist, a U.S. government advisor to Poland. You served as a Peace Corps volunteer, and now you're at Mitsubishi. Would you mind giving us a little bit more background about yourself, how you transitioned between all those industries, and telling us a little bit more about your journey, and what brought you into development finance? Well, Tiger, it's you never you never really know where your career is going to go, and it's one of the great lessons I think. Uh, particularly coming out of an institution like Princeton, you have great flexibility. But I started off, as many people did, working in finance initially. Then very quickly got a little bit bored. Was lucky enough to make the decision to go to West Africa with the Peace Corps in Togo, and it was really there that I met. A lot of older colleagues that really inspired me, and inspired me to go back to look at policy questions, and equally to go back into graduate school to arm me with the tools to really step into this new career. So there was a long period of graduate school which ended with the PhD here at Princeton, and then for a period of about ten years, I worked as a public finance advisor. For the World Bank, for the OECD, and eventually, as you mentioned, working as a U.S. government advisor to the Ministry of Finance, resident in the ministry for three years in Poland, 1996 to 1999. It was a it was a remarkable period. Recall that the wall fell in 1989. There was a great period of transition in Central Europe, as a number of those countries were eager to absorb as much information as possible. How to integrate into the West, and particularly in the case of Poland, which was joining the European Union, how best to receive structural funds coming from Brussels so that Poland could rapidly integrate itself. After that time,、um, which was about ten years after I completed my PhD, I made the decision to move to London and to change my career slightly to become a banker to the public sector rather than simply working on policy questions. 
In Poland, I met a lot of bankers. I was working on a lot of debt management questions as well for the Republic of Poland. And therefore, it was a relatively small jump over to the private side to work as a banker to the public sector. So for 15 years, I worked for a French investment bank called BNP Paribas and worked in the capital markets area, eventually rising up to be global head of capital markets at BNP Paribas. So it introduced me to the whole wonderful range of intermediating between investors and public sector clients, either governments, agencies, subnational institutions, some of the USEC, the US public housing agencies, for example. And it was part of the introduction to the tools that bankers have. And again, despite the fact during, during the crisis, we've become acutely aware of the overreach of some of the financial sector in terms of being perhaps too clever in their engineering. It is true that with my policy background, it was a remarkably rich experience to see where one could adapt some of these financing tools to do both interesting, profitable, and thoughtful work. At the end of about 2014, I decided to come back to the public sector and started to work at the African Development Bank as a senior advisor to the chief risk officer and the acting vice president in terms of private sector operations. Um, I also did a little bit of consulting work for the International Monetary Fund on capital markets work. And I think one of the great lessons for colleagues such as yourself and people listening, is that you can really define a flexible career for yourself with a little bit of luck, but certainly with a confidence about skills and getting reminding yourself always that there's an interesting frame, frame of perspective that you can bring to your work. So while you may be deep into transactions and focused on small elements, you can always move yourself up to a higher frame. And that's what I was able to do working at the African Development Bank, and as I said, with, with the IMF as well. That was a period for about two and a half years. And now I have come back to work on the private sector side, working for Mitsubishi, as you've said. And just in closing, with this introduction of sorts, one of the nice things about coming back to the private sector is you have all of the power of a very large financial institution, and yet a lot of the contacts and the thinking, and particularly the ability to blend finance with the public sector institutions that are eager today to work with big financial institutions, you really get the best of both worlds. A lot of the flexibility and the ingenuity of the private financial institutions with some of the broader impact that the development institutions have as well. And you actually just gave a talk at the Julius Rabinowitz Center that titled uh, Successful Risk Management in Development Finance, Cutting Edge Case Studies from Africa. Uh, Dr. Marks, would you mind helping us clarify the term development finance a little bit? What are some of the major players involved in this process? What has been done traditionally? And what are some of the innovative things that are happening today? I think when we think of overseas development assistance broadly, there are three classes of large actors that have been prominent in providing finance. When we say finance, I'm including both concessional providing of monies um, as well as commercial or market-priced instruments. So the three classes of institution that are prominent are the multilateral development banks, 
and that is led by the World Bank, of course, and the regional partners of the World Bank, like the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank in Manila, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So the multilateral lenders are the largest providers of development finance. Number two, there is a class of bilateral development finance institutions, which large large economies, it's true of the US, it's true of, uh, of the UK, of France, of Japan, of China as well, they have bilateral institutions that perform many similar functions to that of the multilateral development banks, where they provide either concessional money or they also support private sector activity, both in terms of infrastructure or SME lending and so forth. But they do it, of course, with the political objectives that each of the national governments want to achieve. The third category are the export credit agencies that also are housed in each of the national governments, but in contrast to the national development finance institutions that the bilateral governments have, their job is explicitly to support the exports of commercial products from, let's say, the United States. The Exim Bank, Export-Import Bank of the United States, their job is precisely to support the export of American product. So you have, to repeat, you have the multilateral development banks that have the broadest development policy mandates. You have the bilateral governments, US, UK, Japanese, Chinese, that provide development assistance, but through the lens of what each of these governments have in mind. And then as part, as sister institutions, you have the export credit agencies that support the export explicitly of national product, both in terms of engineering kit or contracts um, or other forms of bilateral exports, but to support the industries at home. So those three classes of institutions are really what provide the majority of support um, for what we characterize broadly as overseas development institutions. Amazing. And I think uh, what you just said, the, the thing that struck me the most is use combining uh, the financial tools with the policy background. And I think uh, since our podcast is also supported by Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center of Public Policy and Finance, and I think the discussion of bringing the two is, is very, very important in today's world. And um, and you actually just gave a talk at the Julius Rabinowitz Center that titled uh, Successful Risk Management in Development Finance, Cutting-Edge Case Studies from Africa. You used two case studies from Africa to explain how innovative risk management tools can be used to improve the investment environment in emerging markets like Africa. Uh, since our listeners, unfortunately, didn't get a chance to hear your lecture in person, would you mind giving us a bit more context to the issue you're, uh, you discussed and maybe also a brief description for the two case studies you uh, presented about? That would be my pleasure. And I think I, I probably gave the talk too boring a title because risk management does not sound sexy in the least. But the broader context for the podcast is the changing environment in development finance 
and the accompanying imperative to get more money into infrastructure projects in order to cover the very large and much discussed financing gap needed to get the infrastructure investment in place to begin to achieve some of the development goals, which I think most of us agree are imperative both for human development and for stability. So the broader issue around the risk management paradigm is a question of how understanding the risk profile in some of the jurisdictions that we work in, and we were talking about Africa specifically, how do we get large institutional investors with all of the investment power that they have and which they deploy in more mature markets? Because just as a parenthetically to note, the biggest investors in infrastructure in the United States, in Europe, and certainly in North Asia, in some of the more mature markets, it's insurance companies and it's pension funds that have incorporated a lot of the thinking that used to be the exclusive preserve of the investment banks. It's now with these very large investors. They have large long-term liabilities that they have to satisfy. So having investments that match that long-term liability very predictable cash flows extended over a long period of time, which is a characteristic of infrastructure. That's what we need to get this kind of money and thinking into developing economies and even riskier jurisdictions such as we have in Africa. So the two case studies that I showed, which are both brand new live transactions, which have been concluded in the course of September and October of this year, one related to a very innovative transaction which was concluded by the African Development Bank in Abidjan, which was taking on the challenge that is common to all investment banks about how to manage their own capital more efficiently. Because the point that I made in the talk is that development institutions, even with their policy mandate, they are banks. They're banks, they have balance sheets, they have to manage capital to manage risk against the loans that they make, and they have shareholders equally. Their shareholders are national governments, but in the way that a bank has to be efficient and optimize their balance sheet to get the most lending out of the capital that they have, the development institutions face the same constraints. So in the case of the African Development Bank, the last general capital increase in which the shareholders provided the AFDB with more equity to do their good work, that was in 2010. I think as the listeners will know well, certainly in OECD countries in Europe, the United States, Canada and Japan and elsewhere, it's not necessarily a very opportune environment for going back politically to ask these shareholders for more equity for development institutions. So the G20 has been clear, they need to do more with less. They need to sweat the balance sheet and use some of the tools that commercial banks employ to manage risk. So this is the background for a project that was called at the African Development Bank, Room to Run. The notion of Room to Run is how to create more headroom for more lending, more good public policy work by the African Development Bank, but using less capital and not politically having to go back to the shareholders to ask for more. So the tool that was used was a synthetic securitization transaction in which the African Development Bank worked very closely with a private sector investor called Mariner Investment Group in order to construct a contractual arrangement between the African Development Bank and Mariner Investment Group 
that the bank would agree on a specific portfolio of loans, operational, healthy loans across the continent, and they would agree with Mariner Investment Group to establish a risk protection contract so that Mariner Investment Group, in the event of either bankruptcy, restructuring, or failure to pay in any of these loans in that portfolio, the first percentage of loss would not be borne by the African Development Bank balance sheet as they normally would, but in the manner of an insurance contract, Mariner Investment Group would bear the loss. Now, these contracts, as you can imagine, take a long time to negotiate, and the terms under which Mariner Investment Group bears that loss is very specifically defined, but the principle, like an insurance contract, is relatively simple. If any of these principal events takes place over the course of the contract, it's Mariner Investment Group that bears the loss. As a result, the African Development Bank does not have to carry as much risk capital to protect itself against one of these three credit events taking place against the portfolio. So as we say, that risk capital is liberated for the African Development Bank to use against new loans. So back to the notion of room to run, through the tool of this risk protection contract that transfers the risk to the private investor, the African Development Bank is able to make new loans and continue its business without having to go to its national shareholders and ask for more capital. And just to quickly clarify for our listeners, and sorry to break you off, Mariner Investments is an American fund, and a lot of its investors are actually large institutional investors like pension funds. And that's exactly the case you mentioned previously that uh, those are the type of private investments that didn't want to come to Africa previously. Uh, but now they're able to work with African development banks and have the confidence to come over. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental point, and I'm glad you've, you've put your finger on it. Mariner is a middle-sized asset manager headquarters um, in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the United States. And the fund that Mariner manages that specifically is going to provide this investment is backed by a number of very traditional conservative American institutions. There's the endowment associated with the charitable foundation. Um, There are some university contributors. And there is equally, there are two large state pension funds. And it's, it's fantastic to imagine that in one case you have the Pennsylvania Teachers Retirement Fund that has contributed funds that eventually, working with the very safe AAA balance sheet of the African Development Bank, because again, because it has the backing of very large global shareholders, the African Development Bank is a safe institution with whom to invest. So even those traditional investors who had no vision initially that they would eventually work with African assets were able to structure the transaction to allow them to do that safely. Right. So it's, it's really about crowding in the private investors because we've created such a synthetic structure that makes people feel insured or confident in the African market. We've created a better uh, environment to invest given the risk management tools we, we built upon. I think it is that, and it's really, it's, it's a wonderful, unanticipated use 
if we can say that, of the development institutions. Because the development institutions have a lot of experience in the lending in places like Africa. They manage their risks very carefully. The African Development Bank has not had a pure large-scale default in its history against one of its clients because it has close relationships. They manage politically very closely these loans. So therefore, it's an unusual platform for a traditional American investor in order to get access to Africa through this contract to work with the AFDB to introduce themselves to the continent. And the long-term benefits will be that over time, and certainly as this investment proves to be, I hope, safe and profitable for Mariner, they become accustomed to working with the development banks, they become accustomed to working with emerging market projects through the tool of synthetic securitization, and they support people like the AFTB expanding their operations. So you see benefits on all sides. Got you. And, and the second case study is a different scenario where I think took place in Benin. It's, it's, a, it's another case of using the great strength of multilateral development banks. And I think it's an important theme about the usefulness and the importance of the multilateral development banks in order to facilitate bringing in private sector investors into unfamiliar jurisdictions, well-managed, but still unfamiliar. So in the case of Benin, relatively small country in West Africa, but with a new government and a very motivated finance minister who was keen to increase the infrastructure investment in Benin, but wanted to use new tools. So ministers of finance, particularly ones that are relatively young and forward-looking, are keen to use new tools. So in this instance, the minister of finance of Benin worked with the World Bank to convert some of the World Bank's concessional financing into a guarantee. So rather than simply using the traditional grant tool, he worked with the World Bank to use one of their guarantee mechanisms. As a result, we worked with the World Bank and Benin to use the guarantee to provide risk protection for a large loan which was provided to Benin. Now, behind the loan is not merely a large bank lender like ourselves, but in fact, there are European insurance companies that are providing the financing through the intermediary of Mitsubishi, but it's the institutional money in London and the European continent that's providing Benin with the financing for them to refinance some of their existing relationships and to create room for new infrastructure. But the cleverness of the structure is that these investors who would never, ever invest in Africa, because admittedly there's a lot of risk and the rating levels of the sovereign of Benin are relatively low relative to what these investors normally invest in. But with the protection of the World Bank and the complementary protection of an insurance institution called Africa Trade Insurance, a group which was founded by the World Bank and the African Development precisely to provide sovereign risk protection. The investors in Europe have the knowledge that in the event that something unusual happens and the government of Benin is unable to make the payments on their loan, that they will be protected by the World Bank and by ATI providing that risk cover. So it's a really clever blending of financial tools 
these guarantee and insurance style products, which are able to wrap and protect a traditional loan from insurance companies to a sovereign government of West Africa, and to do that at a pricing which is very efficient for the government of Benin. And just as a final thought, what the transaction really achieved, in addition to getting institutional investors amazingly providing finance to a West African sovereign that they would never have been able to do otherwise, it was able to provide financing at a very long maturity of 12 years at an extremely attractive price for the Ministry of Finance, probably 2% less expensive than what they were able to finance in the market. I believe it's 4.5% to Benin, where if they issued their own bond in the market, it would be around 7%. Right. And so, whereas the overall transaction does not increase the debt-to-GDP ratio of Benin, which is right. a very sensitive concern today, they use that cheaper, longer money to simply pay back shorter, more expensive loans that they'd already taken out. So you're really creating fresh money because the interest costs are cheaper. It's easier for the Ministry of Finance to pay back those loans. So a very elegant outcome for, for Benin and one which the Minister of Finance himself is looking to replicate to try to apply to different sectors in Benin. So just to quickly summarize your points again for our listeners, because you've presented so much wonderful information in such a short period of time, Dr. Marx, um, it's really about involving more parties in this process, the international organizations, the local governments, the private investors. And we need to create, we have the responsibility to create a good synthetic structure that makes everybody feel safe and confident in investing in the emerging markets and also divesting the risks that are present. And speaking of risks, probably because I'm new to the game, uh, would you mind talking a little bit more about the risks involved in this process? Because it's a little bit hard for me to conceptualize who actually bears the risk in this entire process. In any, in any investment, um, you're always managing a range of unforeseen factors that may change your return profile. Now, when you're working in emerging markets, you have a very heavy, heavy overlay of government or sovereign risk in it for a variety of reasons. And the role of the development institutions today, I would argue, is to focus primarily on risk mitigation. These publicly backed institutions are there to manage risk not necessarily as they have traditionally done to lend as well, but also to bring in private investors. And in each of the stories that we've just discussed, what's clever, it's to use the power of these very strong public balance sheets and the insurance sector as well to allow large financial institutions which have liquidity such as the insurance companies that we're describing or pension funds that are used to investing long term, but they're not familiar with the sovereign risk that we see all over Africa. It's not the projects alone that are complicated, but it's really the unpredictability of the government's ability to pay on time. That's, that's, that's the risk factor the development institutions were put in place to manage. So we can say that the governments and international organizations 
have really transformed themselves from being lenders to an entity that not only lends but also mitigates risk and leverage their own balance sheets to attract more foreign investments. Uh, that's probably the way we can think about this. It's it's exactly it, and I should say the way you characterize that is very hopeful. I will say these is where this is where development banks should be going, and the G twenty which is the overseer of all of the shareholders, the development banks, are very aware that the development banks are not doing this to a great enough degree. Development banks, like any institutions, are path-dependent. They tend to resist innovation, as we all do, until you're forced to. And the bankers that work in some of the development banks indeed are used to familiar patterns, where they receive money from their own treasuries, they make loans, they the get a margin, way. and they do traditional business. Right. Doing what you and I are discussing, not only using guarantees instead of traditional loans, is not familiar to everyone. Trying to work with an insurance sector to try to expand the capacity of their own balance sheets is also a great innovation. And it's intellectually threatening because this is new learning, and bankers that are used to making loans that are often evaluated on the volume of loans that they make. Now to use these different tools and this notion of crowding in, which you correctly put your finger on, this is absolutely the cutting edge debate in development institutions. Are they ready to take on this new challenge? Are their bankers being measured correctly for the kind of work that they're doing? And how do we get better outcomes? out of these institutions, which at the end of the day are financed by our own taxpayer money. So in a way, you're forcing big organization and investors to think how they could transform themselves into organizations that use innovative ways to lend and mitigate risks and not just be the traditional big lenders. So I guess my question now is, do you think all institutions or all international organizations should gradually transform themselves into this new business model? Or do you think that some of the traditional business model um, should have a role to play in their old ways as well, sort of assisting this new type of way that you found? I mean, I think it's it, it's a very important point. And let's, let's recall that a lot of the, the transactions that are best suited to this kind of adaptation so that commercial institutional investors can join in, these are investments that are characterized by a strong economic return, of course. Notwithstanding the risk mitigation, investors need to make money. So these are classes of investments that probably are characterized by predictable revenue, um, and not all sectors in the realm of infrastructure investment are necessarily suited for this. So there are some sectors, for example, in education, in health, that may or may not have the same kind of return. These are very complicated policy choices for governments around the world. So in some areas where often government subventions, different areas of blended finance, where there's maybe a higher element of grant financing or subsidy because you want there to be broad access. Certainly in areas such as Africa where populations are vulnerable 
And there's, of course, a very large section of the population that does not have access to services. Some of that class of activity will still be supported by government-to-government lending from the development institutions, working, of course, to make those sectors more efficient. It's not to say that we should go back to old-fashioned, non-careful lending government-to-government, but it's true to ensure broad access and inclusion for the population, they will take a lot of work to build up capacity to ensure that these services are provided adequately, and they may or may not suit themselves to the kind of private investment that, let's say, a toll, a toll road, which, carefully priced, can both provide access to the population, but also provide a predictable return for the sponsor and therefore the financer of the activity. So it will be a diversity of the activity and the traditional, the tr traditional lending model and the blending of concessional support as well will still have high relevance and certainly true in lower income jurisdictions. And I would imagine that we have to analyze each country's circumstance on a case-by-case -case basis, right? Because many African countries are probably not ready yet for this type of blended financing. Africa is a very diverse place. There are 54 countries, and there are some jurisdictions that are quite middle income, growing quickly, diversifying, attracting quite a bit of foreign direct investment. And some of these jurisdictions that are opening themselves up to foreign investment will have a range of investments that indeed suit themselves to this kind of blended finance activity. On the other hand, there are many, many jurisdictions that are not as favorably deployed to be able to embrace a lot of these new financing technologies, and they are still at an earlier stage of adaptation. Very government-centralized institutions still run the economies, and it will take time. And when I say time, I mean decades to move some of these countries along the road so that they have a diversity of economic activity which suits themselves selectively for introducing this kind of really strong private sector um, contribution to the economy. All of, these, all of these jurisdictions in Africa, of course, as is true globally, should probably move as quickly as they can to embrace these new techniques because at the end of the day, Having private sector monies, private sector innovation, and a lot of the positive contributions of private sector engagement across the realm of public services, it's only a good thing. But it does take quite a bit of capacity building so that governments can make proper use of a lot of these contributions. Um, the private sector is not, is not a solution for all problems, but there's a great positive dynamic which properly harnessed can go a long way. Thank you so much for all your fascinating thoughts on development finance, Dr. Marks. It's truly a great pleasure to have you back on campus. Um, and just quickly turning over to our listeners, um, we're actually going to take a break right now with Dr. Marks and come back again in the next episode to talk a little bit more about Africa specifically. Dr. Marks will talk about his thoughts on China's engagement with Africa, uh, some of his examples of good governance in Africa. He will be giving some of his advice for young people interested in learning more about the continent. And lastly, he will give his policy punchline. 
Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and visit us on policypunchline.com or jrc.princeton.edu for more information. See you guys next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.